Hello and welcome. This is episode one, and I'm your host, Luke Markworth. Today we're going to be talking about Temujin Borgesian, or Genghis Khan, one of history's greatest rulers and conquerors. Before I jump right into the life of Genghis Khan, I want to give you a quick overview of what life on the Mongolia steppe would have been like in the year 1162. Typically, Mongolia people would be caring for livestock, hunting, fishing, riding horses. There were few to no luxuries on the steppe. Horses were one of the most prized possessions of the Mongolians. At this time, Mongolia is controlled by five main groups or khanates that shift power in the region. Uh, alliances, politics, raids, betrayal, and revenge were all part of steppe life. As I said, there were few luxuries, and those that were acquired were typically came from the Jin and the Xi dynasties to the east and to the south. These had more city-state-like empires, and they had a better economy. That's why you'd find more luxuries there, where the needs of the Mongol people were very base needs. Food, warmth, water, typical just base survival needs. Now, the five main khanates or groups that cycled power on the Mongolian steppe were the Naimans, the Tartars, the Merkids, the Kirates, and the Kamag Mongol Khanate. The Kamag Mongol Khanate was the largest of these groups in the group that Temujin was born into. Temujin's father, Yusuge, was a chieftain in the Kamag Mongol Khanate. In addition to having strong royal blood, Temujin was also born clutching a blood clot, which was a sign of a strong leader or ruler. Now, during Temujin's childhood, he was arranged to marry a girl from a neighboring tribe around the age of eight. Yusuge had arranged for young Temujin to work for the family as a sort of marriage payment until he was old enough to marry the young girl, and then they would be wed to his promised wife. This was a common arrangement on the steppe. However, after less than a year of working for the family, Yusuge was poisoned by rivals and fell ill. Temujin's family sent for him to return home, but his father died before Temujin could make it home to help. Being that Temujin and his siblings were mere children, his family's nobility was rejected as unsuitable to rule, and they were cast out of their clan in favor of stronger leadership. I assume this was to prevent a challenge as the boys came of age. After being kicked out of their clan, Temujin and his family would have been living on the steppe, scraping by, fishing and hunting, trapping small game just to survive. It would have been during this time that Temujin would have met his childhood friend, Jamuka. Jamuka and Temujin became fast friends, and they shared their ambitions and dreams with each other, and even promised to be eternally loyal, or Anda, a bond that would be tested several times. As Temujin's teenage years progressed, he and his younger brother end up killing their eldest sibling. There are two different accounts on why they kill their oldest sibling. One is that Temujin is angered that the eldest sibling is asserting his dominance as the oldest male and he's stealing fish. Uh, the other account is that he's still stealing fish, but he's doing this because the family is scraping by and it's out of selfishness. Either way, the two younger siblings go on a hunting trip and they ambush and they shoot their brother dead with arrows. And whether it's for this crime or during just another raid after this happens, Temujin is actually captured by his family's former allies and imprisoned, but he managed to convince the guard watching him to help him escape. 
and he hides in some nearby reeds as a search party goes out looking for them. And then as the party is beyond him, he sneaks to a nearby family's home who helps him remove the stocks. And this escape gains Temujin some notoriety in the coming years. Shortly after this, Temujin returns to marry the woman that he was betrothed to all those years ago, Borte. Borte's family gifts Temujin with a very valuable pelt that typically would have been gifted to his father. But since Isuge has been poisoned and died, he gifts the pelt to a local Khan, Togril or Onkan. And this gift is symbolic of parentage. Onkan accepts Temujin as his son and even offers him a force to rule with. But Temujin wants to live out his life on the steppe and raise a family and does not have a strong desire for war and leadership at this point. We'll see him grow into this role shortly. As he's living on the steppe, Borte is captured by a rival force of Merkids raiding Temujin's camp. Temujin is angered by this and goes to Onkan for help. Onkan promises him 20,000 men and tells him to enlist the help of his blood brother Jamuka, who is now the Khan of his own clan. Together, Jamuka and Temujin raid the rival Merkids and crush them, even rescuing Borte. However, some nine-ish months after Borte's rescue, she gives birth to a son named Jochi. Jochi's blood is obviously in question, and there are some that think that he is not Genghis Khan's son, giving his blood right some murkiness or questionability. After their successful defeat of the Merkids, Temujin and Jamuka are two rising stars on the steppe, and they are both gaining lots of followers. Temujin for supporting a meritocracy that values loyalty and ability above all, and Jamuka for carrying with the consistent theme of aristocracy and blood and nobility should rule. The rift between these two blood brothers grows to a point where it's unreconcilable and Jamuka attacks Temujin in a raid and he actually catches Temujin off guard and beats his forces quite easily. This sends Temujin into hiding for the next 9 to 10 years while Jamuka gains power on the steppe. Along with Jamuka's victory, however, he does isolate a fair number of people. After defeating Temujin's forces, he captures 70 either princes or generals, depending on which account, and then he boils them alive. This act is seen as extremely cruel and isolates a lot of the followers of Jamuka. As I said, the next 10 years, we have little to no account of Temujin's actions. We see him reappear around the year 1196, leading a force against the Tartars at the behest of Togril via the Jin dynasty. And remember at the beginning we talked about how the Jin dynasty was known to play different hordes of Mongols against each other. Togril and Temujin crushed the Tartar forces, but rather than continue with typical tradition, Temujin incorporates the defeated army into his own army, thus strengthening his relatively weak but still growing army and giving him a stronger force. Over the coming years, Temujin defeats other Mongol forces such as the Naimans and incorporates them into his growing army. In the year 1201, we see 
Jamuka call a Kurultai of his leaders and appoint himself Gur Khan or universal leader of the steppe. This would have been a direct challenge to Temujin. We see Temujin and Jamuka do battle again shortly after and Temujin wins in a pitched battle against Jamuka, sending Jamuka into hiding this time. As Jamuka is hiding, Temujin is uniting the Mongol forces under his control. In the next five years, we get to the year 1206, we see Jamuka's forces turning him over to Temujin, and Temujin actually slaughters the men who turn over Jamuka, citing disloyalty. He offers Jamuka one more chance to be blood brothers, but Jamuka states that his ambitions are too great, there can only be one sun in the sky, and he requests a noble death. Temujin honors this and breaks Jamuka's back. Honorable death in Mongolian culture meant not spilling blood. That's why you would have seen him break his back, which is, sounds painful. After capturing and killing Jamuka, Temujin called a Kurutai of his own generals and appointed himself Genghis Khan or Greatest Khan. And he finally accomplished his goal of uniting all the Mongol peoples under one leader, himself. Now I want to take a moment to get off the timeline and just kind of talk about Genghis Khan's life in general. Most of his military struggles or struggles in life in general came from his life on the steppe. Everything was relatively downhill from here. He had excellent generals. He had extremely large force. The Mongol horde specifically did not require a large amount of coinage to support. They were very nomadic. They lived off the land. So it was very easy to support a large army like that traveling vast distances. So he had a very advantageous setup for conquering his neighbors in half of the known world at the time. I want to quickly go over some of his tactics that he used um, and, a, and a couple stories from his conquerors outside of the empire just to give you an idea of some of the highlights of Genghis Khan. There's one story of uh, the governor of Otrar, Inilchuk. Genghis Khan sends a caravan of 500 merchants and traders to the empire of Khwarezmia. Now, Khwarezmia is led by a Shah, Shah Allah ad-Din. Shah Aladdin, we'll call him for now. Shah Aladdin was, as I said, the ruler or the Shah of this empire of Khwarezmia. There was a governor named Inilchuk of the city of Otrar. This governor, Inilchuk, sets upon this caravan of 500, which was meant to be an envoy of sort to start trade between the Mongol Empire and the Khwarezmia Empire. Inilchuk says it's full of spies, which is probably was because Genghis Khan was like that, and kills all 500. Trying a different tactic, Genghis Khan sends three men, two Mongols and one Muslim, directly to the Shah. The Shah shaves both the Mongols' heads and cuts off the head of the Muslim and sends it back with the two Mongols. It's at this point that Genghis Khan becomes very angry and decides he's going to destroy the Khwarezmian Empire, specifically the city of Otrar. And he does. He sets three different forces to attack from three different angles on the Khwarezmian Empire and defeats them quite easily. The Khwarezmians made a fatal mistake of keeping small garrisons of soldiers in each city rather than deploying their entire army against 
Genghis Khan's entire army in defending a city. They basically had small forces in cities that weren't being attacked, that were doing nothing, and that cost them in the war. After taking the city of Otrar, they captured the governor Inilchuk, and Genghis Khan or his men poured molten silver into his eyes and ears, and that was a brutal lesson for anyone that was going to murder a caravan of Genghis Khan's merchants slash spies. So that is one of my favorite stories of the account of the uh, revenge and the gruesomeness of Genghis Khan. I'm going to do my best to give you a quick overview of some of the tactics that Genghis Khan liked to employ in battle. One of his main ideas that you can see is pulling enemies out of their lines. He knew that once enemies had broken their lines, it was much easier to crush a force. And you'll see him trying to goad enemies into chasing his forces, which would cause them to be either exhausted or pull them out of their lines or both. So the first one that he would do would be a hit-and-run tactic with the Mangudai archers. And Mangudai were just cavalry archers. They would ride across the front of an enemy force and shower them with arrows until the force became frustrated to a point where they would break their lines and try and charge the archers. And then the archers would lead them back into a larger force. Um, typically, the enemy would be pulled outside of the lines and be crushed. A very similar tactic was the feigned flight where you'd have archers engage, start to retreat almost immediately, drawing the enemy forces towards them, hopefully into a chase. And as they chase, the Mangudai would be firing over their shoulders, killing as many as possible, still pulling them away, still exhausting them, and they would lead them on an extended chase into an ambush where a force of Mongol cavalry and infantry would be waiting and they would crush the now exhausted force who was scattered and outside their lines in an easy victory. This would minimize the losses for Genghis Khan and maximize the casualties for his enemy. So this is a very effective tactic and one that he employs several times in his military career. Overall, I think Genghis Khan's foresight was his best asset. He did a very good job gathering information about his enemies plotting battles very well, understanding what his enemy wanted to do. He was very adept at understanding what the purpose of everything was and why it should work. And in that way, he was able to make things work that never had before. His system of meritocracy had never existed in Mongolia. It was kind of outrageous at first, but it drew people of a lower class who had never had the chance to advance. His ideas of incorporating defeated peoples into his armies was kind of radical, but it made his army stronger than ever before and allowed him to be the first great Khan of the Mongol hordes and unite the Mongol people under one race. Genghis Khan conquered over 9 million square miles and had the longest continuous empire in history. I think his most impressive feat was his ability to defer. Everything didn't have to be about himself. He allowed his generals to make their own decisions as long as they were loyal to him. And this paid off in increasing his empire in several different battles. The lessons we take away from Genghis Khan, be bold, understand the why, and you can decide your own how. Trust people based on their merits, not their blood. Perseverance is key. Nothing great ever was accomplished without great sacrifice. And crush your enemies.